we're looking at some of the healing encounters with Jesus in the gospel, and we're in Mark, the ninth chapter. Part of the setting is that Jesus has been up on the mount of, uh, that becomes known as the Mount of Transfiguration. He turns completely white and uh, is glorified there, and Moses and Elijah are seen speaking with them. And then we pick up the story with selected verses from uh, verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a crowd arguing with the teachers of the law. When they saw Jesus, they, they were filled with wonder and ran to greet him. Jesus asked, what were you arguing about with them? A man in the crowd spoke up and said, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed of a spirit that robs him of speech. It throws him on the ground and he foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples, but they were not able to drive the spirit out. And Jesus said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long will I stay with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring me the boy. And they brought the boy, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it convulsed the boy immediately, and he rolled on the ground and was foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has the boy been like this? And the father said, since childhood, it has often thrown him into the water or to the fire to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If, Jesus asked, everything is possible to one who believes. And the father answered immediately, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And then Jesus does, in fact, cast out the demon. And when he gets back and they're in a private moment, the disciples ask, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus answered, some spirits can only be cast out by prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. So Jesus is away from most of his disciples for a while. And when he comes back, he finds an argument has broken out. Now, you know, really, that's not very surprising to me uh, for a number of things. One is I just know that's how life works, that whenever you have one of these really high moments like Jesus must have had when he was transfigured and Moses and Elijah talked to him, oftentimes the highest moments in our life seem to be followed by the lowest. And, and the things we've learned or experienced in the heights get tested almost Immediately, like Jesus is baptized and then immediately uh, after the Holy Spirit speaks to him, descends like a dove, he gets sent into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. Part of me is not surprised because I'm a parent. You know, I know that whenever my back is turned or I leave the room, no telling what's going to happen between my three children. And, and I sort of know that when the leader's gone, things start to bubble up between the followers. And I know, uh, quite frankly, that people tend to like to argue in general. You know, look at our country. We, we tend to like to argue with each other. But I have to tell you, as a rule, Jews are even worse. Uh, we had a man from Israel who was uh, speaking to our pastors this week, and he brought up an adage, which you've heard me say before, but I was glad that it came from the mouth of uh, an Orthodox Jews. He, he said this. He said, wherever there are two rabbis, there are at least three opinions. You know, there tend to be an argumentative group. And so, sure enough, Jesus comes down from the mountain, and the, the teachers of law and the disciples are arguing. And when Jesus tries to get to the bottom of it, 
a man who has brought his son to Jesus says, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. I brought you my son, and your disciples could not cast the spirit out. Now, what's surprising to me is not that they had the argument, but what's surprising to me is if you dig a little bit, you find out what the argument is really about. But we need to notice a couple details first. The first detail is this, that the man assumes that if you bring someone to a disciple of Jesus, you have brought him to Jesus. Now, think about it this way. Paul said that the believers, people like us, were the body of Christ. Uh, you probably have seen the store Toys R Us or Babies R Us. Really, a church could put a sign on the door that says Jesus R Us. There is a sense in which you, you, when you've seen the disciple, you've seen the master and you've been with the rabbi. So he assumes by bringing the boy to the disciples, that's the same as bringing him to Jesus. The other detail is this. The other assumption is whatever the rabbi can do, the followers can do. Now, we've talked about this on a number of occasions, um, that rabbi and a disciple relationship is not like professor-student. You know, graduate students may be deeply engaged with their professor, but their goal really is to know what the professor knows. But that's not the goal of a disciple. The goal of a disciple is to be exactly who the rabbi is and then therefore to do exactly what the rabbi does. So uh, that's why you get this interesting story one, one uh, night when they're out on the Sea of Galilee and the disciples see Jesus walking on the water. What does Peter do? Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to get out of the boat and come walk to you on the water. And I don't know how many sermons I've preached or you've heard about, well, that Peter, he's just impetuous. But that's not it at all. Peter gets how disciple works. Anything the master can do, the disciple ought to be able to do. So he ought to be able to walk on water. And I think the father has the same expectation. So here's the deal. Here's the argument. I expect that any disciple of Jesus can do what Jesus does, and your disciples can't. And so the argument breaks out. And it's not enough that it causes an argument, but when Jesus then is in further conversation with the Father, this is what the Father says. Jesus says, if everything is possible to him who believes. And remember what the Father says? He said, well, I believe, but help my unbelief. What I think is going on here is that not only is the argument about what the disciples aren't able to do, it's because they're not able to do it, it causes the Father to doubt Jesus himself. Now, let me say this parenthetically. It'll be a long parenthesis, but you need to hear it. Doubt is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, first of all, remember a few years ago when Mother Teresa's writings came out and we found out that Mother Teresa had a lot of doubts herself? Uh, or remember the story of so-called Doubting Thomas? Well, remember what happened with Doubting Thomas is after Jesus appeared to him, he worships Jesus, he ends up going to India, and then gives his very life to Jesus. Doubt is not a bad thing. It's normal for the followers of Jesus. But if you work through your doubts and you keep living and walking and you don't let your doubts just stop you in your tracks, some pretty amazing things can happen. It was Albert Einstein who once offered this observation. He said, I don't give a fig for simplicity, this side of complexity. But he said, simplicity on the other side of complexity, that's worth a lot. And when I think of that in theological terms, it's a way of saying, you know, your faith on this side of doubt isn't really that strong a faith. But when you have faith and you walk on in the face, face of doubts, the faith you've got on the other side, 
Now that's something. That's something worth keeping and holding on to. So let me just say parenthetically, I don't think doubt's a bad thing. But what I'm interested in here is that the behavior or the failure of the disciples actually causes someone not to believe in Jesus. Now you might argue, are you sure that's what it was? And my answer would be, no, not really, but I've got to come up with a sermon at Sunday morning, so I'd take my best guess. Because there is a possibility that his doubt is just because he's watched his child suffer. How many of us have had to watch a loved one suffer? And it does rock our faith, if we're honest. It really causes some doubt to creep in. Elie Wiesel, a Jewish author and theologian who spent um, time in Auschwitz, when he came out of the concentration camp and survived it, they asked him about his faith, and he described his faith as a wounded faith. There's something about pain and suffering in those we love, and when we see it, it wounds our faith. Maybe that's it. But when I look at the way the story flows, it seems to be more that this guy comes to Jesus full of faith. You know, when he shows up with the disciples, he thinks it'll, it can happen. And then all of a sudden, in the course of his experience with the disciples, his faith begins to waver. Jesus' own followers cause other people to doubt Jesus. I know you don't believe that. You've probably never seen a Christian behave or act in a way that's, that's made you wonder. Probably never happened, right? Well, in history, it actually has happened a few times. Inquisition, crusades, anti-Semitism, church arguments in and outside the boardroom. We've seen it. Sometimes I think Jesus' very worst PR comes from his own people that are doing the PR. It can cause people actually to wonder about their faith when they look at the disciples and their failures. One of the interesting things is um, I've been four times to Israel with Ray Vanderland, but if you go with Ray or Scott Hare, eventually, whether it's on the last day of the trip or next to the last day, you're sitting in Jerusalem, somebody always asks, invariably they'll say, Well, why don't the Jews believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Why don't they see what we see? And Ray's answer always goes something along this line. Remember that in Jesus' day, and to a large extent even today, in Israel, disciples are thought to be like the Master. That is their goal. And so the disciples are a reflection of the Master. Whatever they see in the disciples must be exactly who the Master is. And quite frankly, Ray will say, when they look at us, they look at our behavior and assume Jesus is just like us. Because that's the way it ought to work. Let me put it another way. American Christian and pollster George Barna put it this way in one of his conclusions. He said, the main reason people in America don't believe in God is the people who do believe in God. Sometimes we're bad PR in our failures. Now, if the sermon ended there, If the story ended there, that would be guilt-producing, and I don't think this is an occasion for guilt at all. Jesus is frustrated. That's that's true. He says, oh, how long am I going to put up with this? But then the story moves on, and it moves from guilt to, I think, amazing opportunity. And that's this. Jesus drives out the Spirit, so privately the disciples ask him, you know, why couldn't we do it? And you know, my first answer is, well, you're not Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, if you go back to Mark chapter 6, just three chapters earlier, they did do it. What gives? 
And this is the answer Jesus gives them. He said, you know, some demons, some spirits can only be cast out by prayer. And you go, okay, that works. Except you read the story over again. What's the one thing Jesus doesn't do in this story? Anybody? He doesn't pray. He doesn't pray in a way that we see. So we're like, what? But I think we have to understand that prayer is not just something we say when we're sitting in the sanctuary, something at the dinner table, something before we go to bed at night, or something when a friend's in trouble. Prayer, biblically understood, is an ongoing communion with a Father who loves us deeply. It is an ongoing love relationship that is so winsome and attractive that the only thing we're ever told the disciples asked Jesus to put on the curriculum was this. They said, could you teach us to pray? Could you teach us about that kind of relationship? It's It's about living and basking, believing in God's love for you. And loving God and others back in return. That's a life of prayer. Helps us understand what Paul said. Paul said to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. First Thessalonians 5, 17. You can look it up. But you're like, well, I've got to drive. I've got to go to work. I've got to eat. I mean, I've got to sleep. How is this possible? And I think the answer is that prayer is not necessarily sitting there and doing this. Prayer is an ongoing walk with one who loves us deeply more than we could ever love ourselves. And when you live in that, then you begin to get the confidence that when you see something that's out of line with what a loving father would want, you're able to speak to it immediately. You don't even have to think twice. You are so in touch with the love of God and what God wants that when you run into occasions, whether it's a child in need because of epilepsy or uh, or someone who's not fed or a relationship that's broken, you immediately go into it with the confidence of a child of God. See, there's a difference between asking something from a distant monarch and asking something from a parent you know loves you, from a mom or dad. Would you agree? I mean, it would be real hard for me to go across the seas and ask the Queen of England to do this favor for me back at my church. Would you mind just like recording this message and I could play it on Sunday about how special I am or something? I can't do that. But, you know, when my mom was alive, if I wanted to record her saying that I was a really special boy, she'd have done it in half a second. There's a difference. And so when we know that the Father loves us deeply and we live in that, I think things start to flow from that, including miraculous power and very attractive qualities that lead people to run towards you. Notice how they run toward Jesus in the story. And yet as the story goes on, the Father seems to back away. Because when you live and experience that love, people get drawn to it. Larry Crabb is a Christian counselor, grew up in Colorado in a very loving family full of uh, loving banter and jokes and frivolity and, uh, and affirmation and celebration. So he had a friend that would often come over to visit and stay for dinner whenever he, 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 he could um, uh, get an invite. Uh, and really enjoyed because the friend's family was cold and bitter, distant full of resentment. Uh, but what he didn't know until years later, something his friend told him. He said, you know, after dinner and I, and I was sent home, he said, I would go home until my family retired to their rooms or went and uh, went to bed or, or, did, or got out of the picture. He said, I would sneak back over to your house and I would listen at the screened uh, door on the front porch to your family laughing joyfully. 
living and basking in love is so attractive that people will do whatever they can to get in your presence. And the more that we live like that, I believe people will be drawn to the faith. And I further believe that pretty amazing miracles will follow. Now, as I look at our world today, it seems like to me Christians spend a lot of time doing what the teachers of the law did. They want to argue points of the law. But when we look at the rabbi, what did he do? He just lived in love and passed the love on. Well, this is the 150th anniversary of Gettysburg this week. And those of you who know me know I wasn't going to let that pass. Uh, and, and one of my heroes is the hero, or one of the heroes of Gettysburg. His name is um, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. He is the man who ordered the fixed bayonet charge at Little Round Top so that without ammunition, they actually held the high ground and, and turned the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, what you may not know about him is that he was first a religion teacher before he became a military commander. I don't know what it is about we pastors that we'd rather be generals, but that's a whole other story. But what happened, and you saw the movie The Gettysburg, it picked up on this. As they're in Virginia and they're making their way north, and not knowing what they would find when they got there, uh, they, his commander gets promoted and gets called up. And so Chamberlain is, is given uh, the regiment. And he's also given about 170 deserters. And they tell him, look, these guys are deserting. Get them to fight or shoot them. Either one. So he has to rally them along with his own troops to march toward he doesn't know what and to fight a battle that will actually maybe turn the Civil War. But we do know from history that this is what he said before he ever got to Gettysburg. He said to his soldiers, the deserters and the ones that he inherited and his command, and he said, we cannot know or determine the future very much, but we can determine the kind of people we will be when the future arrives. I can't know and you can't know the difficulties, the challenges, the opportunities that are going to face you this afternoon, next week, or a year from now. But what you and I can determine is that we will be people who will drink deeply of the Father's love, live in that love relationship, believe in it, and pass it on to others. And I believe that no matter what happens, people will be attracted and miracles will follow.